2: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
1: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
2: And today we're discussing Heartbeeps, released December 18th, 1981. It was written by John Hill, directed by Alan Arkish, and released by Universal Pictures. Universal packaged Heartbeeps with a relatively small budget, mostly as a test of Andy Kaufman's profitability as a leading man on the path to greenlighting a film that told the story of Kaufman's famous alter ego, Tony Clifton. The script is easy enough to find online, if you'd like. The Tony Clifton story, it's yeah. called.
1: I, I don't know if this this film no. is a good example... Not at all. ...of your ability to be a leading man.
2: <laughs> no, because he didn't write it or have anything to do with its creation. He or, just starred in it because Universal said, do this or you don't get that.
3: Or was even recognizable in any Right. Way. Mm-hmm.
2: Needless to say, that film didn't happen because this one fell flat on its face, only making back a fifth of its meager budget. Sigourney Weaver was approached to play the role of Aqua and expressed a genuine interest in working with Kaufman, but was talked out of it by her representation. Money well spent, I'd say. <laughs> Allegedly Kaufman's agent Bob Zamuda was banned from set early in the process, which sounds like Bob Zamuda from from other stories we've all heard. Yeah. Production shut down from July to October of 1980 due to the SAG strike. Even when production was going, director Arkish drove a lot of the cast crazy with how long he spent setting up each shot. Adding to that, the two lead actors, present in almost every scene, took four hours to get into makeup each day.
3: That's actually quicker than I would have anticipated.
2: The focus of most of the marketing was a celebration of Stan Winston's admittedly impressive makeup work profiled in sci-fi and horror print outlets, Starlog, and Famous Monsters. Winston had debuted this particular makeup style for Nipsey Russell's Tin Man in The Wiz, which we've covered previously. For heartbeeps, he improved on the Tin Man technique to avoid using foam pieces, and instead developed gelatin appliances that would adhere closer to the actors' faces but still offer a glossy surface to apply metallic paints to. Unfortunately, hotter-than-expected weather did cause some applications to wilt during a shoot day and required constant attention. Arkush's initial cut of the film horrified Universal execs who cut it down to a mere 79-minute runtime. The film currently has a critic score of zero on <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, wow. but that only includes six reviews. Mm. During an appearance on Late Night with David Letterman, Kaufman apologized to anyone who had seen the film and even went so far as to offer a refund out of his own pocket. It's
1: the truth of the matter is I am
0: right now working with my lawyer on a plan. I would love to be able to personally give back the money that all of you paid. <laughs> For your admission price. And I am right now working on a plan where I can legally do that. Out of my pocket, <laughs> refund everybody's
2: admission price. Back. Well, make make sure you have change for a 20. <laughs> um, this is
3: true.
1: I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like this movie. I yeah. was going to
3: say, it sounds pretty harsh. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, I'm not going to say that this is a great movie, but it's not a zero.
2: Anyway... <laughs> 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 Razzie Rival's The Stinker's Bad Movie Awards nominated the film for Worst Picture, Screenplay, Painfully Unfunny Comedy, Actor, Accent, and On Screen Couple, but it didn't win any of those. Accent? Yeah, Accent. It's <laughs> a category what? for Accent. I'm uh, a guessing a, one of the robots' accents?
1: Uh, like, was it Catskills' accent? Maybe,
2: maybe. <laughs> That's just Jack's voice, though. It's not even <laughs> an accent. On the positive side, the film was also nominated for an Oscar, specifically for makeup, in the category's inaugural year. But, of course, that statue went to Rick Baker for An American Werewolf in London.
3: That, that, that yeah. definitely deserved that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Author John Hill adapted the film into a novel released simultaneously with the film. I would love to read that. It's from mm. the same guy that wrote the movie. Yeah, yeah. Wrote the novelization. We start with a shot of the crime buster 00719 driving around in the woods. He tells us the details of his work fighting crime in the wilderness. He deploys a sniffer device and is disgusted by some nearby skunks. He arms his weapons with a tree stump in his crosshairs, and when it doesn't follow his instructions, he blows it up. This whole sequence jumps from day to night randomly throughout, and it feels like footage they just couldn't find a better place for. This particular robot prop actually comes from an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, where it was called Death Probe. Mm. (laughs) You know it's a bad sign when you're borrowing props from television and not the other way around. (laughs) Weirdly, we cut from that short sequence to the Universal logo, which rarely follows a cold open. I can't even remember a time that we've seen that in anything else so far. Yeah. We cut to the futuristic warehouse for GM Robotics with a strange moving statue outside that seems to radiate something into the sky. And I believe this is General Motors. Like, this is supposed to be a branch of the General Mm. Motors vehicle company. Mm. Inside the factory, we see a multicolored robotics warehouse. Randy Quaid and Kenneth McMillan as Charlie and Max right around on the front of a forklift being operated by a faceless robot. They nearly crash into a sweeping robot. We get another angle on the front of the forklift and notice a robot standing between them with its head on backwards.
1: Turn your head around. I hate it when they do that.
2: The robot is being put on a shelf because it's damaged in some way and we get three minutes of jokeless explanation about how it was damaged, like Someone told it to lift a thing, and it broke some circuits in its foot, and now it's going on this shelf. The TLDR is that someone used this robot wrong. Later we learn this is Val, one of the Com series, and it's supposed to be a very advanced model. Val is placed on a shelf beside a lady robot, another of the Com series, played by Bernadette Peters, who we will come to know as Aqua. For whatever reason, they are the only two robots not to be covered with quilted cozies. They face out at a wall of windows into the wilderness beyond. In the opening titles, I noticed a credit for matte painter Albert Whitlock, who we just mentioned last week for painting the haunted house in Ghost Story. Aqua remarks on the lovely view. Val doesn't know beauty and requires an explanation. She's kind of like C-3PO. I am being custom reconditioned. As a companion
0: hostess for poolside parties and other social functions.
2: Val can only process information logically, so beauty does not compute.
0: I am Valcom 17485. Function to serve as companion and family.
2: He presumes he didn't get the charm upgrade for money reasons. His specialty is stocks and bonds, and in particular, the lumber market. She explains to him what he should say about a sunset, taking on a deep man's voice, complimenting the view and offering her a drink. They stand still for hours until it's dark out. She teaches him about human courting rituals when a rainstorm kicks up outside. Lightning strikes the closest tree and it falls in half. They move closer together, frightened by the storm and hold hands. We cut to the pov of the crime buster robot as it targets a shooting gallery of cardboard villains another robot is delivered to the shelves on the edge of the factory this is catskill a comedian robot voiced by jack carter the robot's name catskill is a reference to the circuit of summer resorts in the catskill mountains in new york's borscht belt which became the birthplace of a celebrated brand of jewish comedy catskill's voice actor established himself on the catskill circuit which also produced performers like woody allen Milton Burrell, Mel Brooks, George Burns, Red Buttons, Sid Caesar, Rodney Dangerfield, Phyllis Diller, Estelle Getty, Shecky Green, who we saw last in Mel Brooks's History of the World, Buddy Hackett, who we saw last in Loose Shoes, Danny Kaye, Alan King, who we saw last in Prince of the City and before that in Lumet's previous film, our first episode, Just Tell Me What You Want, Robert Klein, who we just saw in Nobody's Perfect.
3: You didn't mention that we saw Woody Allen, too.
2: And Mel Brooks. Jerry Lewis, who we just saw in Hardly Working, Jackie Mason, Carl Reiner, Don Rickles, Joan Rivers, Jonathan Winters, and Henny Youngman.
1: Who who also was in History of the World.
2: Yeah. We cut back to the crime buster, which seems to malfunction, blasting a cutout of a little old lady with a flamethrower. I thought he was going to give some, like...
1: Well, the little old lady didn't have the flamethrower. Well,
2: he has the flamethrower, <laughs> yeah. yes. Important distinction.
1: Uh, otherwise, he would have been correct in, in yeah. opening I, fire. I
2: expected him to give some kind of a Will Smith explanation. Yeah. Like, oh, it's full of these chemistry <laughs> books you shouldn't have so late at night. Aqua sees a double rainbow outside and challenges Val to identify it. Val comments on their apparent compatibility. Catskill is rolled up alongside Val on the shelf. He puffs away on a cigar and shares old-fashioned jokes and provides his own ba after each one-liner. Unlike the Com Series robots, Catskills is seated with tank treads so that they could have a fully animatronic character and save time on makeup.
0: Did you two jokers hear about the guy who was killed by a weasel? Killed by a weasel? How? don't ask max it'll just be something dumb
2: they start to lower the platform but max's curiosity gets the best (laughs) of him and he rides the platform back up to hear the punchline
0: he was sitting on a railroad track and the train came along and he didn't hear the weasel down
2: (laughs) when the joke of the scene is that the character makes bad jokes it's rarely a fun experience for the viewer either Val says he wants to learn about the trees outside, but he needs help. Aqua offers to come with him, and Catskill follows. Now, this is the inciting incident of the film. Yeah. I want to see trees. Mm -hmm. I am a lumber research robot, and I want to see trees. So let's go see those trees that are 100 feet away from this factory.
1: Perhaps this robot also (laughs) decides to add to his usefulness by directly acquiring data.
2: They try to ask him if he's coming but Catskill answers exclusively in jokes. We cut to a factory break room where Charlie and Max are sitting across from Dick Miller, who they refer to as Walter. They seem to be gambling, and we see the three robots we've met sneak by in the background.
1: So this is one of the things that happens a lot, uh, where characters will address other characters by their names. But but they don't get credited that way. Yeah, they get credited as like Watchmen or The Boss. And I was like, well, hold on. He called him by that name, but I don't know which character this is in the movie. Yeah. I mean, Dick Miller, I recognize anywhere.
2: Right. And he goes by Walter Paisley in so many things Mm -hmm. that it's a clear reference to that, that they're calling him Walter. The robots steal a car. I will operate the vehicle.
3: Do you have the programming to be a driver? Affirmative.
2: In the break room, Walter asks the guys where they moved the robots because they're gone. A man named Robin is furious to learn about the missing robots and orders the men to locate them. He says all this too loudly and too near the Crimebuster robot, which mistakes the conversation as an order and speeds out into the night to find them. Eventually, Val crashes the van they stole, and they're forced to continue on foot, or treads. They decide to construct a robot from their supplies in the back of the disabled van for extra company. Weirdly, it sounds like John Williams is recycling notes from the Star Wars theme here in the woods.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very clearly a John Williams score. Yeah. Um, I mean, he does some kind of cool techno stuff here and there. Yeah. But it just immediately blends into, like, before before the music credit, before I even saw it, I was like, well, let's take a John Williamsy note." note that yeah. it said music by John Williams. Yep. Like, oh, well, here we go.
2: The spare parts bot achieves sentience. Uh-huh.
0: Just what we need, a walking toaster.
2: Aqua names him Philco. Sometime later, Charlie and Max find the crashed van fully stripped for parts. Now, this Philco robot, they will, moving forward, treat it as sort of a child because mm-hmm. they right. created it together, but also because it's made of spare parts, which children are.
3: Right. I mean, why else would you have children exactly. aside from, you know, the extra kidneys and stuff?
2: Yeah. Yeah. In case my knees go bad with the kidneys.
3: Right. <laughs>
2: but <Bad-dum-ts>. I'm... <laughs> Down. <laughs> Val and Aqua talk about God, and I wonder if any of this is even worth transcribing because everything they say seems random and pointless. They're supposed to come out here to observe trees. (laughs) What are they doing now? Where are they going? What is the mission?
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, they did make vague references to basically just gathering more data to be better at just their jobs.
2: But don't they also know that they should go back to the factory where they were supposed to get rehabilitated?
1: Well... I think you're thinking about this movie wrong. I definitely (laughs) am. (laughs) Because he didn't he's not they don't he doesn't want to see trees. He wants to take her on a date. But he doesn't know how to express that. Does he? Yes.
2: Okay. I did not get that. I thought he was just looking at trees because he's a tree robot programmed to look at trees and know about trees, and then they went to look at trees, but they're not even looking at the trees.
1: Yeah, because he just wants to spend time with her.
2: Alright. Well, wasn't he doing that on the shelf inside where they could charge their batteries?
1: (laughs) (laughs) What is the definition of
2: God? God is an irrational unknown variable which humans
1: associate
2: with the value judgment known as goodness. Back at the office, the bigwig guy, Robin, says that Babe Aldrin is joining the search with a helicopter and they'll find those robots soon. Am I supposed to want them to be found or not to be found? <laughs> is the factory bad? Do these robots have unrealized goals in the woods? Philco, or Phil, finds a rabbit. That's a scene. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to Babe Aldrin's chopper and she's being played by Kathleen Freeman. Aqua and Val lose track of their friends, but only notice Phil is gone. They're like, hey, where'd Phil go? And it's like, wasn't there another guy with us? (laughs) Where's that guy? (laughs) They look for Phil for a long time. Charlie is getting airsick in the helicopter, but he never throws up. This never pays off that Mm. he's nauseous up there. The robots find Phil. (laughs) That's a scene. (laughs) I feel like Universal put Kaufman in this just because they didn't want to make the Tony Clifton movie. So they were like, here, this is going to fail, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. So you do that. The robots find a cave to sleep in. We need shelter for the night. Do you, though? (laughs) You seem waterproof. Val hears an animal inside and prepares to reason with it. It throws him out of the cave, and he is damaged in his landing. The bear comes out of the cave to scare them all away, and Val identifies it as a camel.
3: How does the bear throw him out of the cave?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good question. Maybe he just pushed, like, an eject button. Yeah. Phil rolls right up as the bear is growling to the sky, but when the chopper flies by, the bear escapes and fast forwards, spooked by the machinery. The robots hide in the cave and successfully avoid the helicopter crew. That night, Phil and Catskills look for firewood to give the Com series robots privacy. Phil pretends to laugh at Catskills' jokes.
1: I don't know if he's pretending to laugh. I think he's actually genuinely laughing. You think laughing. so? I don't think he understood any of it. <laughs> and I, lo- I love his laugh. Like (laughs) I I think I I I think he was adorable and uh, because he was definitely giving me like Wally or yeah definitely or Neptor if anyone knows Neptor never ending pie throwing robot. What the
2: (laughs) hell is that from?
1: It's from Adventure Time. (laughs) Okay.
2: (laughs) Aqua tries to fix Val that night and offers parts of herself for things that she can't fix. They work to fix each other's pleasure centers when the other robots return and interrupt. They all grab small trees to disguise themselves as they sneak through town in search of more supplies. They find most of what they need in a robotic store, but they're out of energy packs. Phil wants a hat, and everybody tells him he can't have everything he wants, even though they aren't paying for any of this <laughs> shit. <laughs> Catskill uh, Phil, sorry for Phil, and steals the hat
1: from yeah, him. Yeah, but he also has like a little, he literally has like a meltdown. Like yeah. He catches fire because he's throwing a tantrum <laughs> about it. <laughs>
2: Crime Buster rolls down the street looking for the fugitives and catches them crossing the road despite their tree disguises. They're asked to identify themselves. Uh, I am Bushbot 60034. Zero, zero, I
1: am Bushbot 60035. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, we're part of the Mobile
2: Decoration Corps.
1: <laughs> Val goes, yes, good, good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Catskill asks Crimebuster if his mother had any kids that lived.
1: Did your folks have any kids that lived?
2: (laughs) Do you guys recall the last time we heard this joke? Oh, man. The guy said it to his own brother, so it made less sense.
1: I don't
3: remember this.
2: Gas. Uh, Oh, no. The Vespucci brothers.
0: What, did your mother have any kids that lived?
2: He checks the numbers and determines that these are the criminals. They are lying about their model numbers. He asks them to hold still till 4 a.m. when the police will arrive to arrest them. Val says they can't be criminals because they're robots. And Crime Buster says they can't be robots because they're criminals. We've been given no indication that robots can't break the law. In fact, (laughs) all we've seen them do is break the law.
1: (laughs) But they haven't broken the three laws. Right.
2: But, yeah, they didn't murder a person. They're not, like, using human heads as disguises, which would be much more gruesome. (laughs) But harder to disprove that they are who they say they are. (laughs) Crime Buster is overloaded by the logic problem and short circuits in the road before running away. They notice a party across a lake and decide to crash it, posing as party bots, even though Aqua is a party bot. We see the same shot from earlier of the Crime Buster deploying the sniffer tool, and then he cuts across a lake toward the property. Catskill starts to roast the guests, and they love it. Crime Buster smashes through a wall into the party and then opens fire on a staircase made entirely of those glass bricks from the 80s yeah. that they built dentist's office out of. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the robots sneak out of the party and Crime Buster chases them. For no reason, Val is mad at Aqua now and is not responding to her. Well, but then he likes her again and apologizes.
1: Well, the, there, there's like a surprise... I, it's not a cameo because I don't know how big Paul Bartel was. Yeah,
2: I, I'm not sure. Like,
1: but I, I associate him with a lot of Joe Dante, and, and but he also
2: directs a lot of big stuff
1: too. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, but seeing him with uh D- D- and Dick Miller in a movie right, together, yeah. it's like oh, I'm getting serious Joe Dante vibes. Yeah, it's, from it's
2: the Corman crowd too. All of them. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it seems like he was like the owner of the house. So when we flash forward, it's like him and his wife walking mm-hmm. through the debris of their living room.
1: And Va- Val's angry because. It was Aqua's decision to go to the party because she thought it would be a good idea to blend in, and right. it ended up not being a but good idea. But it was his
2: idea to use trees as a disguise, and that didn't work either. Like, yeah. I don't understand why he's suddenly mad at her when they've been on the same team the whole time. And he doesn't explain it either. He's, she's just like, why aren't you talking to me? I like it when you talk to me. He's like, okay, I'll talk to you. And that's the end of that scene. Like, that that's the entire conflict. We cut back to Charlie and Max. Their truck has been disabled or broken down somehow when charlie tires of working on the vehicle he offers max a beverage
1: you want a bag of beer why not
2: inside <laughs> we find a bunch of capri sun style envelopes of coors
1: oh man the next time i would see this joke if it, it's not a joke but it's like a weird hint of the future uh was in mission to mars and they drink they, bags of beer yeah there? it's, it's like, i think it's budweiser or coors and they have them in in capri sun bag <laughs> um it's also where they let you know it's the future because that's in mission to mars it's so much garbage in Mission to Mars. Yeah, but uh, they also know, let you know it's the future because they make fun of like Tib Robbins For driving, driving an internal combustion car. Vehicle. <laughs> I can't believe you drive that internal combustion car. Because like, uh, we're in the future. Yeah, but I, I but I like that that Charlie is like thought enough to bring his own mug. Yeah, <laughs> like he knows he's yeah. gonna go drinking later, so he just brings his own mug.
2: Max tears the top off of a bag to chug one. So it's not even like you stab a straw into it, you just yeah. rip the top off of it.
0: <sighs> I sure Mr. cans.
2: Charlie pours the contents of his own beer bag into a Coors mug, a prop which Homer will later discover amongst a collection of forgettable props decorating a Planet Hollywood restaurant.
0: There's the coffee mug from Heartbeats! <laughs>
2: <laughs> the robots find a junkyard and search again for replacement energy packs. Two employees of the junkyard, Susan and Calvin, played by Melanie Mayron and Christopher Guest, are able to identify the models of Catskill, Aqua, and Val. But what in the world is that small one? Apparently Susan and Calvin are references to the character of Susan Calvin from Asimov's Positronic Robot short stories. Catskill tries to steal a wool brush as a wig and then tosses it. Val slaps a bongo drum, an instrument that Andy Kaufman himself was famous for playing on stage. Do you guys recall the last time Bernadette Peters starred in a movie with a recurring SNL guest who played the instrument he's known for for like three seconds?
3: Pennies from Heaven? That's right.
2: <laughs> More weirdly Star Warsy music as the robots explore the junkyard. The Crime Buster finds them again because that's all that happens in this movie. The Crime Buster finds the robots over and over. They walk, he's good they get at his caught. job. <laughs> he is. But it's weird because it's like, in one scene, they diffused him by saying, robots can't be criminals and criminals can't be robots. And he's like, ah, oh, it does not compute. And he ran away. And they don't do that every time he shows up. <laughs> Crime Buster opens fire on them, but he's quickly deactivated by Susan and Calvin. For some reason, Val doesn't ask for the Crime Buster's energy packets. I thought they would just, like, sap those right out of him and then charge everybody up. Val and Aqua consider Phil their child, and Susan and Calvin offer to fix him up a bit. But to truly improve him, they'll have to take him back to the factory. Val and Aqua both lie about their remaining battery life to avoid scaring each other. Charlie and Max appear to be closing in on the robots, which I think is a good thing, but they get some Jaws sound alike music, like we don't want the robots to be brought back to the factory, but they're dying out here. <laughs> they have literally no way to charge themselves, and their baby isn't even going to get brought back to the factory, and he will die tomorrow.
3: But is he really their baby? They just want to use know. him for parts. I
2: guess. Catskill yanks out Phil's battery pack and trades with him, and then dies. Turns out Catskill was intentionally telling bad jokes to save energy. (laughs) I don't care enough about any of these characters to care what happens in the rest of the film. I don't even know what any of them want. Charlie and Max find the dead Catskill and then load him up to return to the factory, which is either good or bad. I don't know. (laughs) Within sight of the factory, Val and Aqua's batteries die. When Val notices that she has shut down, he asks her about love and then he dies. Phil cries about his dead parents holding hands like statues. (laughs) Charlie and Max find them and load them up while Phil watches and cries.
3: So presumably... Okay. So when we got to this point Mm -hmm. where Phil finally says words and he says mommy. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so... They're pre-programmed with some sort of language to start with. Yeah. So then that makes me really question all of the times up until to this point with this film that I'm like, they're all about efficiency, right? Yeah. The, the, all they want to do is increase their efficiency. Mm-hmm. And yet they constantly speak by using, like, ten times more words than they need to. It's yeah. like, are you, uh, are you concerned about the approaching lack of light? Like, you know the word night? You know yeah. the word dark? Yeah. You know the word afraid? Like, yeah. oh, that is the very inefficient way to say, are you going to be afraid of the dark here? But also,
2: <laughs> if they're both calm series robots, you would expect that, yes, we are both afraid of that. We both know that that's happening, and it's not worth even bringing up. Like, we need batteries.
3: Yeah, but, like... They should be able to know words in order to speak efficiently. But they do this thing that's very similar to what uh, like alien movies do where they're like, I don't understand your language Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to approximate what it means to like. So you describe words as opposed to just using the words. But these guys should just know the words. Right,
2: right. (laughs) Charlie watches Phil leave. And he doesn't do anything about it because he's like, that's not one of our robots. There's nothing for me to do.
1: Well, and uh, they had mentioned that the direction, so that Phil knows the directions back to the junkyard.
2: Oh, okay. Sometime later, Babe Aldrin asks Charlie and Max what happened with those robots, and Charlie says they got rehabbed a bunch of times but kept malfunctioning, so they took them back to the dump. We cut there, and all the robots are fine, and Aqua even made a little sister for Phil. We cut to a needless epilogue, recycling more crimebuster footage because they must have thought this character was a big crowd pleaser. <laughs> the end. That's heartbeeps.
1: Uh, there was an interesting credits. Oh, okay. In, in the closing credits, I don't know if you know that that the uh, Phil's beeps were oh, yeah. provided by Jerry Garcia.
2: <laughs> so apparently, he originally spoke exclusively in guitar licks
1: oh that would have been great and then
2: i read that when universal did their huge cut down that they took all of that out and replaced it with cute little beep boop sounds because they wanted to profit off of the r2d2
1: oh man i think stuff. that yeah. would have been so great so yeah. in
3: fact none of his <laughs> no, <Jerry> stuff <laughs> yeah. yeah. oh,
1: that's so upsetting <laughs> yeah uh, but also, uh, Catskills jokes were by Henny Youngman.
2: Right. Well, the two of them probably wrote them together. Right.
1: Yeah. But uh, but I lo- but again, I just like because I, lo- I love Henny Youngman humor. Yeah. Um. So I was very excited to see those credits. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so uh, I liked this movie. <laughs> you liked it? I like this. Mo- I thought it was cute. I I thought I was gonna. I think I said the bar so low. I thought I was gonna be like absolutely like hating every minute of it. But I found it to be adorable. I
2: really didn't expect that this could have disappointed me. And yet it did. (laughs) Because there's really nothing to the story. The story is these robots go out of a factory. Mm -hmm. And the factory's not evil or trying to destroy them. There's no reason for them to leave. There's literally no conflict. Because if they get caught, they get returned to the factory. Which I kind of wanted the whole time. Because I'm worried about them in the wilderness. (laughs) So it doesn't... I don't get it. I don't like there should have been a clear goal that they mm. were headed towards because I don't know why they're out there and I don't know where they're trying to go. Yeah. All they're doing is wandering lost and their batteries are dying. But theres it's not like they were almost to a place they were trying to get to. Well, mm-hmm. I was
3: waiting for the really epic, like, oh, we're going to get to the factory. We're going right. to like take yeah. over. We're going to manage to get everything we need to live on our own in society. No.
2: Like, imagine Fellowship of the Ring, but there was no ring or volcano. (laughs) And they're just like, all right, we're going on an adventure. Where are we going? I'm not sure, but we're slowly dying because we can't eat food on this adventure for some reason.
3: I feel like I must sit somewhere in between the two of you here because I also set the bar extremely low for this movie and it achieved it <laughs> okay, so well, I, I don't feel angry at it because it's exactly no, what I expected from I it I don't
2: feel angry at it I'm more mad that the Tony Clifton story never got made
1: into a movie <laughs> <laughs> that's what makes you mad that's what makes me
2: mad is that this movie killed another movie
1: yeah
2: yeah Heartbeeps. uh thumb thumbs <laughs> thumbs up <gasps> Fuck it. Thumbs up.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. I, I
2: didn't like the movie, but watch it.
3: Well, yeah. that's, that's exactly why I was going to give it a thumbs up, because I'm like, it's a terrible movie, but I'm going to tell everyone <laughs> yeah. to watch
2: it. <laughs> I, I honestly probably will tell people to watch this, too. It's garbage, yeah.
1: I but like, watch it anyway. <laughs> I like this movie. Thumbs up. <laughs> yeah.
2: I don't know why it got made. I, I don't know how this got greenlit. It, it literally looks like they just they recorded a makeup test mm-hmm. and then put it in
1: the theaters.
2: <laughs>
3: Uh, put them in the woods so you can see some different lighting. Yeah. I,
1: I feel like almost all of the antagonistic robots in Fallout were modeled after Crime Buster. Yeah. Because they all have that kind of weird By semi... By which you
2: mean modeled after Death Probe from the $6 million Yeah, rate. Well, no,
1: no, not not in, in style, but in voice. Oh, okay. Like that weird kind of semi-military yeah. sounding general voice.
2: That's definitely from before this movie,
1: though. Yeah, but it just... Like, all the whole time, every time Crimebuster Buster was talking... Um, and just like the weird little idiosyncrasies of his talk. Is like, this, yeah. say, this seems like every robot I've ever encountered in Fallout.
2: <laughs> what are we thinking letterboxed for this one?
3: I forgot to rank it. Oh, no, boy.
1: A minute. You guys are going to hate where I have it. <laughs> Number one. Richard, where do you have this? Uh, I have it at 39. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> which puts it below Zoro the Gay Blade, but above the hand. Oh. <sighs>
2: I don't even have the energy to process that information. All right. My energy pack is depleted. <laughs> Heartbeats. I have it at 158, oh. which is under silence of the north and just above the scream.
3: <laughs> All right. I have it at 118. It's below the unseen, but above continental divide. <laughs>
2: And coincidentally, this movie has quite a divide yeah. in our interpretations, and it went largely unseen. The director here was Alan Arkish. He previously directed Death Sport and Rock and Roll High School for Roger Corman. After this, he directs
1: Caddyshack 2,
2: Ugh. classic. He also directed music videos for The Ramones, Dawkins, Elvis Costello, and Bette Midler. And oh, then, oh, sorry.
1: Well, they say Caddyshack 2 like, reunites with like Randy Quaid right, at yeah. least, but also Jackie Mason, who we mentioned was part of the Catskills. More Catskills. Yeah. yeah.
2: And then mostly TV directing like the Fame TV series Moonlighting, Crossing Jordan, and Heroes. I think he actually created Crossing Jordan, mm. <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, the writer here was John Hill, who previously went uncredited for additional writing and Close Encounters. Later he writes a couple Quantum Leaps, Quigley Down Under, and the first Thunder in Paradise film. The music here came from John Williams... Star Wars, Indiana Jones, The Long Goodbye, The Supermans, Harry Potters, Jurassic Park, etc. We've obviously heard him last year for Empire. He was back this year for Raiders and Superman 2. He also wrote a Christmas score for Home Alone that fits so well that I'm convinced that they're just regular Christmas songs that have existed for Mm -hmm. a century.
1: And they still use his uh, Olympics score. Do
2: they? Yeah. I thought they used Randy Edelman's Olympics score.
1: Well, um, they use that for a lot of in-betweens, but I I still think uh, the... Okay. The main theme that Williams wrote is still
2: used. <flagship> <laughs> <speaking> 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 uh,
1: <speaking> I get so excited whenever I watch the Olympics and I hear Briscoe County Junior's theme song. Yeah,
2: it's like, I can't believe that they just flat out reused this music for this, but I'm glad they did.
1: Briscoe's turning a profit, people. Yeah.
2: The cinematographer here was Charles Rosher Jr. Before this, he lit Pretty Maids all in a row, and so far on the show, three women. Not much I recognized after this, except Police Academy 6 and a single episode of Dr. Quinn. Which (laughs) which
1: is 6th Mission to Moscow?
2: (laughs) That sounds right, yeah. Ugh. His father was Oscar-winning cinematographer Charles Rosher Sr., with a statue from the first Academy Awards for cinematography on Best Picture winner Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, and another win for The Yearling in 47, with additional nominations for The Affairs of Cellini, Kismet, Annie Get Your Gun, and Showboat. The editor here was Tina Hirsch, Uh, Tina previously cut Macon County Line, Death Race 2000, Eat My Dust, and more American Graffiti. She's back next season cutting Airplane 2 and then Joe Dante's Twilight Zone segment. She follows Dante to Gremlins and Explorers and later cuts Captain Ron, Dante's Peak, and 16 episodes of The West Wing. Andy Kaufman was Val. Before this, he was in God Told Me To and In God We Trust. So this is his first movie that doesn't have God in the Mm. title. He's best known for his own abstract comedy routines, the regular character of Latka on Taxi, and a handful of Saturday Night Live appearances. He was famously played by Jim Carrey in Milos Foreman's Man on the Moon. He also did a lot of wrestling, specifically challenging women to beat him. He was the, I think he called himself the intergender wrestling champion of the world mm. because no woman could beat him, except for several women who did beat him. Bernadette Peters played Aqua. We saw her first in The Longest Yard as the Warden's Secretary, and more recently in Pennies from Heaven, she reunited with Steve Martin after The Jerk. She's back next season in Annie, Pink Cadillac, and then she voices Rita on Animaniacs down the line. Randy Quaid played Charlie. He's Cousin Eddie in the National Lampoon Vacation movies. He's Ishmael in Kingpin, Russell the Savior of Earth in Independence Day. We've seen him so far with his brother Dennis in The Long Riders as Jay, the adult guy with a teenage bride in Foxes, and as the inferior wrestler in Paper Moon. Kenneth McMillan played Max. So far we've seen him in Hide in Plain Sight, Little Miss Marker, Carney, Borderline, Eyewitness, True Confessions, and Whose Life Is It Anyway? He's back later this year in Ragtime, and later shows up in Amadeus, Dune, Cat's Eye, and Armed and Dangerous, among many others. Melanie Mayrin played Susan, mostly directing credits, like on the Babysitter's Club film. And later three Nash Bridges episodes, a couple Dawson's Creeks, three episodes of Greek, one episode of Glow, and the second episode of Lincoln Rhyme Hunt for the Bone Collector, created by friend of the show VJ Boyd. Mayrin still works often to this day. Christopher Guest played Calvin. He was the director of Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind. Apparently he directed Almost Heroes. <laughs> I oh. didn't realize that. We saw him last alongside his brother Nicholas in the brother-centric Western The Long Riders last season. Guest also appears in Spinal Tap and Princess Bride. He's SpongeBob's cousin, Stanley Squarepants, on that series. Richard B. Schull played Factory Boss. He was Sugarman in Clute and Dr. Ross in Splash. We saw him previously as Jethro in Holy Moses, and more recently as Dr. Daniels, rival of Dr. Stoner, in our Patreon review of Sssssss. Dick Miller played Factory watchman, addressed as Walter in the scene. He plays Walter Paisley in a bunch of stuff. He's in almost every Joe Dante movie. He also has a deleted scene in Tarantino's Pulp Fiction that you can find on YouTube where he plays the father of Julius Sweeney's character and the owner of the junkyard that takes the car at the end. Honestly, the scene doesn't quite work, but obviously Dick Miller is magnificent. We've seen him so far in Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood, Used Cars, The Howling, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, and most recently in Smokey Bites the Dust. Kathleen Freeman played a helicopter pilot, she's sister Mary Stigmata in The Blues Brothers, she's the voice of Mrs. Crackshell on DuckTales, mm-hmm. she's Microwave Marge and Gremlins 2, and we saw her last as Mrs. Jensen in The Ballad of Cable Hogue.
1: I like her part in uh Space where she's the she, at first she's like she's part of the reoccurring nightmare of this woman coming up to uh, his check stand, yeah. But then when she finally does show up, and she she think he thinks she's pulling out a gun, but it's a cigarette lighter that's shaped like a gun, <laughs> which is still like very inadvisable yeah. to do in public.
2: So she's worked with both Quades then. Mary Waranov played party house owner. She was Calamity Jane in Death Race Two Thousand, Miss Tofar in Rock and Roll High School, Audrey White in Night of the Comet, Raquel in Terror Vision, Mary Bland in both Chopping Mall and Eating Raoul. Paul Bartell played the other party guest. He's the director of Death Race 2000, Eating Raul, and Lust in the Dust, which reunited Tab Hunter and Divine from Polyester. Bartel Bartell also appears as an actor in Piranha, Rock and Roll High School, White Dog, Frank and Weenie, Chopping Mall, Munchies, Caddyshack 2, and he shows up in Gremlins 2, the new batch, as the owner of the theater. Mm-hmm. Wally Ann Wharton played party guest. She was Debbie in Up and Smoke and then mostly porn after this. Barry Diamond played Firing Range Technician and Catskill Performer. This was his first film. Later, he appears in the movie Madness, Bachelor Party, and House Parties 1 and 2. Stephanie Faulkner played Firing Range Technician. We've seen her so far in Virus Day of Resurrection and High Risk. Jeffrey Kramer played Party Butler Robot. His first credit was Hendrix in Jaws, which he reprised on our show in Jaws 2. We saw him more recently as Graham in Halloween 2, and later he's Tozer or Towser in santa claus the movie and a motorist in clue irene kagan played party made robot she was imm in lucas's thx 1138 presumably another robot david labelle played forklift driver robot he's a stunt man and the son of famous stuntman gene labelle jerry garcia is the voice of phil sort of he was in some cut of this movie um But yes, it's that Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead. He has a composer credit on Zabriskie Point, and as you may have guessed, he was named after my favorite ice cream flavor, Cherry Garcia. (laughs) I think he's got a biopic coming starring Jonah Hill. Jack Carter played Catskill, The Voice. Uh, He's the uncredited police inspector in Trog. He was the mayor in Alligator and the Rat Vendor in History of the World Part 1. (laughs) Ron Gans played Crime Buster. He was Freddy in The Gay Deceivers. We've seen him so far in SOB and Hell Knight. And he voices Dragstrip on Transformers and Juggernaut in Pride of the X-Men.
1: I also recognize his voice mostly from uh, first season of TNG. Oh, okay. Um, He was the voice of this sludge monster named Armus.
2: Is that the one that kills?
1: uh, Yeah. Yeah, what's her name? Yeah, I was like, oh man, that's the voice? Yeah. Oh, he's so horrible.
2: (laughs) Crosby, right? Uh, Denise Crosby? Yeah, Denise Crosby, yeah. All right, I think that's everything for Heartbeeps. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. What's that sound? We
0: got one!
2: That's right, it's a new patron, Scott White. As a $5 patron of the show, Scott now has access to 44 full size 70s reviews and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Neighbors, which IMDb describes like so. A quiet man's peaceful, suburban lifestyle is threatened by the new, obnoxious couple that moves in next door. We leave you now with the trailer for Neighbors.
0: In a not too distant suburb, on a very quiet street. Well, I guess it's about that time. Need any help? Earl Keese, a reserved, hardworking homeowner, sits calmly waiting for his dinner. Little does he know he's about to meet the Neighbors. Someone's moving into the Warren in place. So. No? Funny time to be moving. Ramona. Hello. What can I do for you? The question is, what do you want in return? Is your wife making dinner? Would you like to join us? You go ask your wife if it's okay. Oh, it's no problem, really. Don't argue with me. And Vic. So, what do you say, neighbor? Welcome to the end of the road, I guess. It's a great house. Thank you. I mean mine. Well, what's on the menu, pal? I'm starved. And somehow, his life will never be the same. Who Go goes there? Hi, Gerald Keith. Columbia Pictures presents John Belushi. I swear to God, we may have to move. They're very strange people. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, tasty. They come in four flavors. What a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Kathy Moriarty. you left ball in the corner pocket. in neighbors. Lock the doors. You go to hell, you're not getting back in here. They're coming your way